A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to the Daily Beast Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre order now. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and I'm joined, as always, by Kelly Weil. Kelly, how you doing? I'm good, and I'm frankly, Will, very proud that our show has outlasted Laura Logan's run on Newsmax. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Our main competitor. <laughs> they said it wouldn't last. <laughs> Two fighters enter, one exits. Yep. <laughs> There's only room here for one. Now, you're referring to a bit of a flap. Laura Logan, who people may remember as being a star 60 Minutes correspondent, and things have gotten a lot crazier for her over the past few years. But she's kind of finally gotten to the point, you know it's a bad sign when it's one thing to get kicked off Fox News or something, but you know it's a bad sign when Newsmax is like, ooh, I don't know, I think we're going to stop taking your calls. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually wondered kind of academically, what does it take to get kicked off a Newsmax? What does it take to get kicked off an OANN? And I think she's finally found that litmus test for us. And it seemed to be talking about the elites wanting you to eat bugs and drink baby blood. That seemed to be finally the line. Yeah. So last week she goes on Eric Bowling, former Fox News host, now also hanging out there and Newsmax. She goes on his show. She's doing her kind of usual thing. Oh, I'm so mad at the elites, all this stuff. And then she's like, these are the people who want you to eat bugs. They're drinking children's blood. And Eric Bowling's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I have to say to his credit, <laughs> he really kind of <laughs> slipped it in there. And then it's only afterwards our eagle-eyed video capturers on Twitter. They catch the video and they play it. And you think, oh, oh, she's doing QAnon. Yeah, that's pure uncut Q. And Will, you've been kind of like following her descent for a while. And it's really accelerated recently. Like it's only been in the past couple months that she's delved right into the like Q posting sub stacks, right? Yeah, I mean, she's really getting into it. I mean, she was posting a week or maybe a month or two ago. She posted a link to a sub stack that was like, this explains everything. And then you look at it and it's just like straight QAnon, like Trump's still the president, all this stuff. I think if we trace the Larry Logan sort of political turn, it was when she did this story about Benghazi for 60 minutes that was very much like in line with a sort of very conspiratorial like Hillary Clinton issued the stand down order. I mean, I, I don't remember precisely what it was, but essentially it was this idea that like the Obama administration had somehow like really screwed up here and deliberately abandoned these guys. And then that story completely fell apart. And so then in a case, I think we see a lot of times with people who are relatively well-respected professionals and then they screw something up and then it becomes either an opportunity for reflection and growth or an opportunity to become a right winger. And so in this case, she took the latter. She's also, she and her husband, this guy who's like somehow connected to like some former military intelligence stuff, a guy named Joe Burkett. They kind of like pop up a lot in these right-wing circles over the past few years. I wrote a story about this 
meeting where people considered various kind of right-wing figures considered wiretapping Seth Rich's family and her husband was at that and really just over the past few years she really like she's gotten into it I mean she made like a voter fraud movie with Mike Lindell and she goes on these QAnon streams and really like sometimes people go on these QAnon streams and they sort of they kind of dance around the topic they don't say like Q rocks and they don't really get like right into the conspiracy theories but she does the problem is you gotta what they call hiding your power level right you can post the QAnon substacks on Twitter you can go on the I am the matrix or whatever stream but you can't do that on Newsmax because Newsmax it has to like have some claim to respectability and once you sort of mix the streams that's where she ended up in trouble right I mean Newsmax famously it knows consequences right it's being hit by one of these massive defamation suits by Dominion they went too far claiming that Dominion fabricated the vote and so they're facing real consequences and the Lara Logan saga is really interesting to me because Will and I you both follow conspiracy theorists sort of lower tier more average people who are sucked into these matrices and very often it's like once you get on the conspiracy train it's really hard to get off you just need to be finding something more and more potent just the real pure uncut stuff and as people do that it kind of distances them from family from friends from a more reality grounded world and i think lara logan is someone who's experiencing this kind of professionally right she ousted herself from the mainstream and now she can't even really fit within the at least well-financed fringes she's too weird even for them yeah i mean she's really headed towards the world of like rumble videos and stuff the outlook is not great i don't think 60 minutes is going to be calling again but it is always funny in terms of a broader look at the right-wing media it is always funny to see where the line is and so you can go on and talk about oh the election was stolen all this stuff on newsmax but then it's like for whatever reason the QAnon stuff is where they cut it off so as an observer of this i'm grateful to people like lara logan for testing the boundaries and sometimes getting burned when you find out where that fence is she's a scientist in her own way we respect the research <laughs> Okay, Will, so it's football season, Penn State, get the boys together on the quad, toss around a football. But actually, Monday night, some less savory stuff went down at Penn State University. Can you fill us in what happened there? Yeah, so this is a what I think potentially heralds the return of the classic controversial speaker shows up at campus, students react, Fox News gets some Antifa footage to make them mad. I'm speaking this time about Gavin McGinnis, Proud Boy founder. He was set to have a speech at Penn State, which has sort of become a hub for a lot of this activity. They hosted Milo about a year ago. That speech actually didn't get that much attention, but Gavin's provoked a big student backlash. And so there were a lot of peaceful protesters. And then ultimately, some people in all black who appeared to be on the pro-Gavin side pepper sprayed the progressive students. And then Penn State canceled the event. And Gavin and his sort of crony, this guy we'll get into named Alex Stein, fled the scene. So this is interesting to me because I think, obviously, during the COVID era, schools were closed, and we didn't see a lot of this kind of like this right-wing provocateur stuff. But now they're getting back into it. And I was thinking about this with a lot of this stuff where it's, do students need to be protesting a Ben Shapiro speech? Or like when this happened recently, Benny Johnson was showing off his epic memes, and someone came in and... <laughs> kicked the projector. Now, look, are Benny's memes good? No, of course not. But I mean, is that the right reaction? Probably not. But I think in the case of Gavin McGinnis, it is kind of crazy that Penn State let him on campus because, I mean, this is a guy who created a group that is now, according to prosecutors, engaged in conspiracy and sedition to overthrow the government, a group that is considered in Canada a terrorist group. So it's kind of wild that the administration there is like, yeah, yeah, sure, come on in, do a comedy set. It is really funny. It's really telling to me how Gavin McGinnis has always sort of skirted below the line of like outright prosecution 
execution, right? I mean, half of his boys are in prison right now for things that he was ultimately, I think, quite culpable in, even though he hasn't been charged, even though he says he doesn't lead the Proud Boys anymore. Come on, his fingerprints are all over this sort of thing. So to see him at a campus event is really quite striking. And I think the organizers of this event know it too. I mean, there's this whole philosophy of you invite the most provocative person you can, you try and rile up the left and you get your footage of a blue haired girl protesting and you go viral. And they certainly did this time. Yeah, they had some a young woman spit on Alex Stein. So they kind of got what they wanted. Absolutely. But what's funny is that so often these events don't actually ever take place, right? I mean, there's enough protests that it gets canceled, it gets classified as a public safety risk. And again, they've got to know this. I'm not even going to fully say this is a public safety risk because of counter protesters. It's a public safety risk because of the people who show up to support Gavin McInnes as well. We saw this in New York in 2018. A whole bunch of Proud Boys came to the New York Metropolitan Republican Club to see a riveting comedy set by Gavin McInnes. And what did they do right afterwards? By the way, in which he was dressed as like a Japanese assassin figure with a sword who killed a socialist back in the 60s. <laughs> this is just comedy. A whole lot of laugh lines. Everybody gets that reference. It's Abbott and Costello. No, I mean, it's Listen, these people are here to brawl, right? That's the whole draw of the Proud Boy. They want to get some lefties riled up and throw a few punches. And that's exactly what these student organizers are complicit in. And that's why it's so weird to me to see a college not really get that to be like, yeah, come on down. We're going to have some heterodox thinkers on campus. Yeah, this is not the University of Austin crew. This one seems to have gone a little awry because it's so obvious that the pro McGinnis side are the people with the pepper spray. I mean, there's a billion videos out there of this. And so that, I think, suggests this event will be of sort of limited use for like Fox News and stuff like that. On the other hand, and this is something we go over and over, when your own side does something bad, that wasn't our guys. Those were agent provocateurs. <laughs> and so McGinnis put out a video of him and Alex Stein fleeing the scene. And they say, oh, well, I know all the Proud Boys. And all the Proud Boys at that event were sort of in civilian clothes. So anyone who did any pepper spray, those are feds or those are or liberals out to make us look bad. Yeah, absolutely. And should we fill folks in for who Alex Stein is? Because he crops up in some of these less savory videos. I would love to. For me, sometimes people pop up and I'm, I'm like, I'm not even that familiar with this guy. Pop up a couple more times and I say, all right, I'm getting to the bottom of this guy. So here's the deal. So Alex Stein is a guy whose whole deal is confronting liberal figures and people he deems rhinos. And he does it in a very nasty way. And he talks really quick. And so like to give folks an example, he says he kind of pops up and he goes, it's prime time, Alex Stein, 99. Hey, Dan Crenshaw, how you doing? I patch McCain. <laughs> But he just talks like really intensely, really quickly, and he's always smiling. And so when people go, F you, he goes, that's not very nice. Something like that. So comes off as pretty obnoxious in my impression, and that's not an accident. So this is a guy, and I think I'll have more to write about this guy at a later date, because it's truly a fascinating background. But basically, he's like a failed reality TV contestant. He was obsessed with being a villain on these sort of apolitical reality shows. Then more recently, he became radicalized by conspiracy theories and COVID, and now he just sort of shows up and yells at people. So a couple examples of this, as I said, this time he harassed Dan Crenshaw at, a, I think, like CPAC, Texas. Probably he's most infamous for accosting AOC outside of Congress and calling her a big booty Latina. Very unpleasant guy. And so in this case, Penn State is blaming some of the agitation on him because this guy's whole thing is he has to kind of wade into a crowd of haters. And so in this case, he showed up and just started saying, oh, where are the big booty Latinas at? And then that predictably, the crowd did not love that. So this is a guy who I think is a very unsavory character, even by the standards of people we normally talk about. Yet, he's a guy who I think is gaining some traction on the right. And he recently guest hosted for a week on One America News. 
and he had Owen Benjamin on as a guest. And we're getting a little in the weeds here, but I mean, Owen Benjamin is like a straight up anti-Semite conspiracy theorist nut. And so last time I saw him IRL was at a flat earth conference. I mean, he's straight up posting Anne Frank denialism. He's living on a commune. He's completely in the weeds there. Yeah. So these are the kind of crowds that Alex Stein hangs out with. Meanwhile, he's also kind of building these links to more relatively mainstream right wing media outlets. So I think he's one to be aware of. And certainly I think the fact that Gavin McGinnis is bringing him into the mix is something else. So I think this Alex Stein guy might have a future doing these sort of campus events and kind of getting walloped or whatever or spit on in this case. Benny Johnson tweeted this today. He was just like, we don't deserve Alex Stein. What a legend. So certainly they got what they came for, but it is, I don't know. I guess we shall see. It seems like maybe the campus stuff might be revving up once again. Can I give you one parting anecdote about Alex Stein getting walloped? So he's the kind of guy who like will just do really dumb things for negative attention, sort of like toddler mindset. If you look him up, 2014, there's a headline called Meet the Guy Who Lost $70,000 Playing Fantasy Football. And he consented to an interview in that. So, you know, he's someone who any spotlight is good spotlight. Doesn't matter if you're getting spat on by a 20 year old student at PSU. It's all good. Someone's paying attention to him. He's sort of one in a long line of sort of failed apolitical entertainers who then decide to become Republicans and have more success that way. He had a failed reality show about his car dealership. They put this themselves. <laughs> I mean, yes, I have watched the pilot. It's a bunch of scumbags in Dallas selling busted up cars. And he's like, we're always hustling here. Like, this is the story of a guy and his dad just trying to hustle. His dad seems like an all right guy, but like a big time drug dealer at one point in Dallas. <laughs> so, I mean, I should save it for the story, but he's quite a colorful character. And I think one we're going to be seeing a lot more of. Great. Ship him in to talk to our teens. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Kelly. Well, speaking of events that go off the rails, you've been following the Reawaken America tour, which is this kind of a heady blend of Christian nationalism and QAnon and COVID kookery and Trumpism that is taking over our country. What's going on? So for the past, oh, year and a half, honestly, there has been a steady drumbeat of this thing called the Reawaken America Tour. Now, this kind of pricked my interest early 2021 when some of the regular kooks I follow started talking about, we're getting on the road together. They're all going to take a bus. They're going to go town to town and really enliven the electorate. It's been pretty kooky, but it's actually sort of picked up steam lately because as you mentioned, this very Christian nationalist themed tent revival, I want to say, has been drawing pretty big audiences, especially ahead of the midterm elections. This is something that's affiliated with guests like Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, Eric Trump has been making a lot of appearances. And last weekend, it really had a two-day extravaganza in Pennsylvania. We had some really colorful footage emerging from the ground. There were a lot of, frankly, I hate to say, but kind of creepy religious events. There were people describing themselves as prophets, talking about the imminent death of all their political enemies within the coming year. There's this graphic that says, let's pray that the angel of death visits the... F I mean, just really like crazy stuff, even describing it. It's like, let's pray the angel of death visits these people. And okay, here's our graphic. Angel of death, here are your hotspots. Brian Stelter, Fauci, etc. It was actually an eclectic bunch because either the obvious, like Joe Biden was the top one on there, but then there was like, Lindsey Graham was on there for some reason. New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who I don't even know know why they've got reason to beef with him. He's not a really strong masking guy. So in any other context, you could openly call this a hit list. But here, no, it's the angel of death may visit 
um, within the how many weeks do we have left in the year, like the next 12 weeks or something. So it's, as you say, pretty heady stuff. It's pretty vitriolic stuff. And it's gathering around about 5,000 people attended this weekend. Yeah, people love it. I mean, I'm kind of an OG on the Rewake America tour. I attended their first one back in Tulsa in April 2021. And it is this, you folks may remember this is the one where Jim Caviezel of The Passion of the Christ said he believes in adrenochrome and all this stuff. People love it. I mean, I remember they would do these kind of come up and be saved and people would pray over them and then they'd say, all right, now let's hear Linwood talk about QAnon. And in a way, for folks who, who like the spectacle, it bit too bad that Linwood has gotten crosswise with Clay Clark, this events operator, because I mean, he would just bring down the house. He would do this thing where he'd say like, tell it to the Rothschilds. And everyone would <laughs> And tell it to the House of Windsor. Like, I mean, they would just, they were out for blood and not the kind of blood they don't like. Not, not baby blood, adult blood. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and so, I mean, Clay Clark, the founder of this, he's this Tulsa businessman character. I've described him as sort of like red-pilled, like Gary V. He's like a very, like, he's got all these like kind of business schemes. People may have seen in the past, he had this whiteboard that like looked really crazy that got some pickup. It was all these lines and stuff around Trump's face, which actually, I don't know, maybe I'll throw Clay Clark a bone here. It was not quite as crazy as people made it out to be. It was his dream. He had a theory about COVID-19. You have to keep in mind, this was taking place a year and a half ago. And he he had an idea that COVID wasn't so bad. And so he had to get this message to Donald Trump. And so he created kind of this scheme of people to whom he could get this, like people he had to have on his show to then reach Donald Trump. But this stuff has really taken off. And as you said, I mean, Doug Mastriano was supposed to be there. It is sort of a place where the fringiest fringe, fringe, fringe conspiracy theorists on the right interact with people like Eric Trump. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a colorful melting pot. You have a lot of the very religiously themed actors there. You have a lot of the bogus health actors there. This is really an all-star lineup, right? You've got folks like Dr. Stella Emanuel. People might remember her. She's the doctor who said demon sperm is making people sick. Simone Gold, Stella Emanuel's colleague who was convicted of rioting at the Capitol. They're all there, folks. Did it term in the Hooskow. <laughs> I do actually want to return to what you're saying about Linwood, though, because it is interesting that this coming together also exists exists within this massively fractious and feuding MAGA atmosphere. So Linwood, of course, was initially af- affiliated with Reawaken America, has since drifted away, has since honestly alienated quite a lot of his peers because my computer is just full of worms. I actually have a screenshot open right now of Linwood ragging on the Reawaken America tour earlier this year. And I'd like to do a bit of a dramatic reading. Think of how despicable it is to make money off the demise of America, to romanticize the idea of patriotism and the fact that our country was stolen from us to profit off the greatest president of modern history's loss of the 2020 election. And he's going on to say this is the absolute state of Michael Flynn and his digital soldiers. So, yeah, I mean, this roadshow is honestly a hit. Some of the profiteering is not going down so well among all of Trump's fans. There is certainly some knowledge that this is a moneymaker. This is where Mike Lindell is going out and he's flogging his pillows harder than ever. And it does seem like some of the cynicism, some of the weirdness has rubbed some Trump fans the wrong way. I mean, I just love the great rupture moment for the Reawaken America tour came, I believe, last year when a bunch of the attendees in the green room kind of the a lot of the boldface names got sick and all of their symptoms were clearly COVID. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but these are vaccine deniers and they can't, and a bunch of them got seriously ill. 
but they couldn't admit it was COVID. And so they had to say, well, I think someone poisoned the air at the conference with anthrax because they're out to take us out because we're so brave. And then they had to kind of like think about it. And they said, well, maybe Clay Clark put anthrax in the air and he's trying to take us out. And then it kind of split between people who thought Clay Clark got his hands on anthrax to murder them and people who thought that there was anthrax, but it wasn't Clay's fault. (laughs) I think Ron Watkins of QAnon fame said that there was a fine mist in the air that had been observed. And that was what was carrying the anthrax, which is weird because if it was a mist in the air, you would think it would hit people a bit more equally. But no, it only hit the boldface names who have Minds.com membership that they can they can sell the true story to for $5, which is what somebody was doing. You must have at least 30,000 followers on Telegram to be susceptible (laughs) to this virus. This one in, in Pennsylvania got a lot of attention, I think, because of the midterms coming up and also it's close to New York where all the reporters live. I think it is truly a crazy event. It is just seeing it when I went, it was like, it is one of the craziest things you can see is just people just, and they got children's blood. And everyone's like, oh, ah, like 5,000 people. And they say, talking about executing traitors and all this stuff. It is really wild. And I think it keeps rolling. It is not going anywhere. No, absolutely not. It's easy to make fun of, right? It's easy to browse the merch tables and you try and buy some regenerative cell magic elixir. But I think there is a real risk here because this is not exactly a forum for nuance, right? This is where they call their enemies literal Satanists, literal demons. Everything is good and evil. And it struck me, Doug Mastriano, he's running for governor in Pennsylvania. He was supposed to show up. He had a stand there this weekend. Didn't actually show. He ghosted. I don't think that actually hurts him, right? I mean, this is a base that is so, so fanatically right that it doesn't really matter if their candidates are trying to sell their stump speech or something. It really just matters that Democrats are literal baby eaters, things that you couldn't say on Newsmax because you'd get kicked off. Yeah, exactly. I don't think these people are going to vote for the Democrats. I would just say like the point of the, I think the Reawaken America tour is so interesting because not only is it sort of this crossover between conspiracy theorists and these politicians and officials, what have you, but it's also, it just shows, I mean, people really believe this stuff, tens of thousands of people. And sometimes when you write about this, we talk about it on this podcast, some people will say, oh, they're just joking, right? They're just trolling the media when they answer a poll and say 10% of people believe in QAnon or that they love hydroxychloroquine and stuff like that. But then you go to this and it's like, no, it's real. They believe it. And so I think that's just another data point. See all the people in the flesh and you go, wow, this is a real thing. It's like stepping into a portal. It's like you have very few shared foundational facts and you're just drifted. You're at the whim of whatever the world is that they say it is. Okay, Kelly, who do we have as our guest this week? This week we are joined by Maurice Shema. He is a reporter at the Marshall Project and he's also the author of Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. He's got some great new reporting on America's sheriffs and their far-right tendencies, so stick around. Fever dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We are joined by Maurice Shema. He is a reporter with the Marshall Project and the author of Let the Lords Sort Them Out: The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Maurice, how's it going? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you for joining us. So, Maurice, you've got this really fascinating new reporting on sort of the state of the country's sheriffs, but particularly about what we might call the constitutional sheriffs movement. So can you tell us a little bit about its leader, Richard Mack, and what exactly he believes? Sure. So Richard Mack is this interesting figure who has been kind of on the right for many years doing public speaking. I think he was a constant presence at like Tea Party events 10 years ago. And in the late 80s and early 90s, he was a sheriff in a small rural county in Arizona. At the time, the Clinton administration pushed a bill through Congress that would have, it was the Brady Bill is what it was called, and it required that sheriffs and other local officials do background checks. Sheriff Mack sued and went to the Supreme Court and won. The Supreme Court said, you don't have to do these background checks. And he sort of rode that into a career as a public speaker and author, even after he had lost his teacher campaigns for sheriff. He's also had a lot of other interesting roles. He was on a reality show called American Candidate when he was running for office. He's run unsuccessfully for governor of Utah, for Congress in Texas. He's been a car salesman. He's been a high school history teacher. But now he has emerged as this leading figure of what's called the Constitutional Sheriff Movement. He runs an organization called the Constitutional Sheriff and Peace Officers Association, or CSPOA. And they believe that sheriffs are the most powerful law enforcement official within their counties. And so within a county, they are more powerful than the governor, more powerful than the president. And they believe that sheriffs who disagree with a particular law should just refuse to enforce that law within their counties. This often comes up around gun laws, Second Amendment, COVID-19 and masking. And now these sheriffs are really at the center of efforts to cast doubt onto the 2020 election and sort of follow Donald Trump's claim that the, the, the election is stolen. They're trying to seize voting machines. They're talking about surveilling polling places. And so they've really kind of put themselves at the heart of sort of Trump's messaging about the election that'll affect future elections. I know his organization, the CSPOA, is always tooting its own horn, saying they're huge. But did you get a sense while you were reporting how many sheriffs actually subscribe to these beliefs? Yes. So I had always assumed, like I think many, that these organizations are in the business of making themselves sound bigger than they are. Richard Mack estimates that they've trained at least 800 sheriffs, but a lot of those sheriffs aren't in office anymore. I went to a training in Texas last year that had 60 or 70 sheriffs and deputies. It wasn't huge. Well, last year, I started working with these political scientists who had found this really novel way to survey sheriffs, basically through email surveys. We sent the survey out to 3,000 plus sheriffs. We got more than 500 responses. And those responses suggested that the constitutional sheriff movement is actually much bigger than even Mac previously knew. So... A very small number of sheriffs will say that they're actually a member of this organization. Many claim they've never heard of the organization. But when you ask them, do you think your own authority supersedes the state or federal government? Are you willing to interpose yourself between the state and federal government and your county residents, which is 
straight up language that the CSPOA promotes, a really, really large number of sheriffs actually say that they agree with those views. So it suggests that Richard Mack's rhetoric has really soaked into the way that sheriffs see themselves. So what does this look like on the ground? I mean, it certainly strikes me that you can see how this idea that a sheriff is like a little king would be very appealing to sheriffs themselves. But I mean, what do these ideas look like in action? Well, a lot of these sheriffs first, I think, gained a lot of popular acclaim on the right. I guess you could say, when they publicly refused to enforce masking and lockdown orders, especially in the early days of COVID-19. If you remember March and April of 2020, you were seeing governors try to issue these lockdown orders and require masking in public places. And a lot of these sheriffs came out and using really kind of overblown rhetoric about how this is like Nazism and this is fascist would say, well, we're not going to enforce any of these COVID-19 measures. And so as a result, you would have people unmasked in or indoor and public places. You'd have restaurants and barbershops and other kinds of little businesses that would stay open in these counties. Whereas in like in Austin, Texas, where I live, where the sheriff was not a part of this movement, a lot of these sorts of businesses really did close and stayed closed for a while. So that was how what it looks like in COVID-19. What it looks like in the context of guns is red flag laws don't get used, basically. So you might have lots of people who have guns that have shown themselves to be a threat to themselves or others, have made into that they may carry out a shooting. And the sheriff says, I believe in the Second Amendment. I believe that my role supersedes the state red flag law, so I'm just not going to use it. And as a result, those guns stay in those people's hands. And then finally, as it comes to the election, there's now a sheriff in Michigan who's facing state investigation there for trying to seize voting tabulators. And we're starting to see sheriffs use this rhetoric around elections, although practically on the ground, it hasn't spread into that many counties yet. But it's something that I'm watching. So you described this event that you went to, the sheriff training event. And in the past, I've seen a trend of CSPOA actually doing countywide training, saying that this is a CSPOA county now. What happens at these trainings? What kind of education are sheriffs and deputies getting when they go to a constitutional sheriff event? Frankly, it's a little bit scary. So I went to this training outside of Houston last year. There were 60, 70 sheriffs and deputies. Some of it was very kitschy, like there was a pastor that was dressed as George Washington who gave a prayer. There were a lot of these speakers there, like Chris Ann Hall or Gary Heaven, who are figures on the right that promote basically the idea that Richard Mack is promoting, that the sheriff is sort of the little king of their county and is the most powerful law enforcement official there. And they talk about incidents where sheriffs successfully kicked out a federal law enforcement agent. So maybe the Food and Drug Administration was trying to come in to investigate something, or forest rangers were coming and policing the federal parks and trails in somebody's county. And the sheriff basically went to these federal law enforcement agents and said, get out of my county. And presumably the federal agents didn't want to basically pick a fight. And so they left. It was usually a sort of small stakes battle. There was one example they made a lot of involving Amish farmers who were trying to sell basically like home remedies that were not approved by the FDA and federal agents were looking into it and the sheriff pushed back. These little anecdotes can seem kind of small or like unimportant, but they sort of send this message to the sheriffs that when it really does count, if there's going to be background checks, if there's ever going to be federal or state gun control laws that really require registering or banning assault rifles or something, that it's the sheriffs who need to stand up to the federal agents, potentially with violence. And although they don't preach violence directly, they claim that it's nonviolent. The rhetoric really gets awfully close to saying, if it ever comes down to it, you need to stand up and defend, physically defend your constituents from 
state and federal law enforcement agencies. So obviously none of these sheriffs would come out and say that they agree with racism. I know Sheriff Mack has described himself as an equal rights advocate, but I was wondering if you did see racism or nativism factor into this movement, and if so, how that plays out. Definitely. So Richard Mack is extremely adamant that he's not racist, is not sexist, is none of the ists, and is really like many sort of popular figures on the right, feels sort of ill-treated by the media more broadly. Feels like reporters are out to get him and, and lie about him and try to associate him with white supremacy. The thing is, he often has shared stages with people who are open about white supremacy. He has often gone to bat for people like Randy Weaver from the Ruby Ridge standoff in the early 90s, who's, I think his term for himself was white separatist, right? And Richard Mack would say, well, I don't actually share those views with him, but he keeps sort of sharing the stage with these folks. And so that has led, I think the Anti-Defamation League had an interesting way of putting it, which is to say that he's just got an incessant need for an audience. So he's never going to say no to a public speaking gig, even if the people that he ends up sharing the stage with share some of these views. Now, Emily Ferris and Miria Holman, who are the political scientists that I conducted this survey with, they like to use the word nativism to describe statements that Mac uses, especially on his website, where he'll say things like, immigrants are not assimilating into our culture as they once did, and this has devastating consequences for our country. It feels like anti-immigrant rhetoric, absolutely, and many sheriffs in our survey espoused very anti-immigrant rhetoric, but you can make the claim, I suppose, that that stops shy of out-and-out racism. But I will say that at the training in Texas that I watched, there was this one woman, she's black, and she had refused to shut down her restaurant in Minnesota in the early days of COVID-19 when the state had these lockdown orders. And Richard Mack basically called her out in this room and had her stand up and had everybody applaud for her. And he described her as a modern day Rosa Parks. And throughout the rest of the day, he went on and on about how Rosa Parks was this hero and how a sheriff in his movement would not have arrested Rosa Parks. He also said to me at one point, if a sheriff had stepped in to protect George Floyd, he would still be alive, which I thought was a really like pushy thing to say and, and would be really controversial to a lot of people who took to the streets after that murder. Anyway, so throughout the day, the rhetoric had been about Rosa Parks and about this particular Black female business owner, Lavita McFarquhar from Minnesota. And afterwards, I called Richard Mack and did an interview. We did several interviews for the story. And I mentioned that moment and he said, you saw me use the black lady as a prop. And he sort of said that just out and out straight away. And I found that somewhat shocking. I included it in the article. And so like, it's obviously up to readers and listeners to decide where you cross the line into racism. But he certainly is like aware of race in this very, very particular way where he uses it as a tool and knows what he's doing. How does this all interact with the elections? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of interest from folks in like investigating the election machine and stuff like that. Where do sheriffs play a role in that? And then what can we expect in November? So Richard Mack really pivoted in the last year. It had been guns and COVID-19 that he really cared about. And, and you notice that the constitutional sheriff movement will also often kind of follow sort of these streams of the larger Republican Party and even further to the right groups in terms of what they care about. And over the last year, as Donald Trump started claiming baselessly that the 2020 election was stolen, you started seeing Richard Mack go on stage with True the Vote and some of these better known election groups on the right and in basically have panels with sheriffs where they would promise, we're looking into the election, we think there were irregularities, and we are going to keep investigating voter fraud. Now, one of Sheriff Mack's key allies, Darleaf, a sheriff from Michigan, is facing a, a state investigation in Michigan over helping to seize a voting tabulator. There aren't a lot of other 
examples like that, where you have direct evidence of a sheriff directly doing something that is against state law or federal law, potentially. But that said, you have a lot of sheriffs using this rhetoric that they are watching elections really closely and are investigating them. And so you might start to see more stories of them trying to actively get their hands on voting technology. You're also seeing them promise to go to polling places more and have their deputies stationed there, which from their position is we're protecting the integrity of the election. But from other perspectives, it's they're intimidating voters. There's a fear that they're going to harass voters and make people feel like uncomfortable basically voting in a way that really evokes the 1950s and 60s and the way that Black voters were technically legally allowed to vote, perhaps, but intimidated out of actually doing so. Mac has said that I don't think any sheriff is going to try to intimidate people in this way. And it really remains to be seen how this plays out because a lot of this stuff is kind of predicting what might happen as opposed to saying, okay, we know exactly what's happened already. And you have sheriffs making certain kinds of promises. You have activists raising certain kinds of alarms. And we'll just have to see what happens on November 8th when it comes to sheriffs and their deputies actually being at these polling places and what they do when an activist on the right says, there's irregularities here. This person's committing election fraud. Or when a voter says, I don't feel safe voting because of these activists or because of these deputies. I think you have sort of the seeds or the ingredients of a powder cake here. Maurice, what's so interesting to me is that a lot of sheriffs, unlike regular cops, are elected figures themselves. Do you get the sense that any of these statements they make, any of these platforms they take are trying to keep them in office? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of the claims that sheriffs are making are popular with a lot of their constituents. Most counties in the United States are rural, and most of them are majority white, and most of them are conservative, right? Because Obviously, people who vote blue tend to be more clustered in urban areas. So that means that you have a lot of sheriffs who are shifting towards this constitutional rhetoric because they perceive it's what their constituents want. Many sheriffs actually in interviews following the survey said to me out and out, they've been asked by their constituents, are you a follower of Richard Mack? Are you a constitutional sheriff? Will you stand up for us? if Obama or Biden try to take our guns. I mean, this is the kind of rhetoric that sheriffs are hearing from their constituents and then are repeating back to them to sort of comfort them and potentially get elected again. But there are a fair number of these kind of constitutional sheriffs who are in counties that have shifted to be more and more purple. One of the leading figures in the constitutional sheriff movement is a sheriff named Chuck Jenkins in Frederick County, Maryland. And he actually admitted to me that he wasn't necessarily sure he was going to win in November because his county has gone increasingly purple, is increasingly gotten flack for his really harsh immigration views and the way that he promotes kind of Trump's immigration policies on Fox News. He goes to Sheriff Mack's events a lot, has a kind of rapport with Mack. And so you're starting to see the constitutional rhetoric not just be helpful to sheriffs as they get elected, but maybe also a bit of a risk. One thing that was really interesting to me about your reporting is that you do have this huge survey where you reached out to all these sheriffs and had them actually self-report their views. And so when you talk about Richard Mack saying that a sheriff would have prevented George Floyd's murder, can you tell me what you found about sheriffs' views of the 2020 racial justice protests? So our survey found overall that sheriffs had extremely negative views of the protests in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Many of them said that those protests were motivated by a bias against law enforcement as opposed to a good faith interest in accountability. And many of them 
thought that deaths like George Floyd's were sort of isolated incidents as opposed to signs of a broader problem. And so it gives you this picture of law enforcement where they don't believe that they're really doing anything wrong or that that much needs to change. And so they don't really have an incentive to change. And I will say that this is very different from the rhetoric you tend to hear from police chiefs. So we generally think of rank and file police as being fairly having negative views of the 2020 protests. But you frequently, especially in bigger cities, see police chiefs at least say, we're willing to consider banning chokeholds, we're willing to consider more training for nonviolent responses to these incidents, or better mental health services, have mental health workers go out with our officers. You hear that rhetoric a lot, sort of giving the 2020 protests at least some kind of good faith reaction, right? And where you get the negative reaction may be from union bosses, right, in these cities. But sheriffs are much more aligned, it seems, with the union bosses. They are much more likely to say, these protests were basically just rabble rousers trying to make trouble, and they're not really recognizing a real problem that re- actually exists, and the media is whipping it up beyond what it should be, and these are isolated incidents or nothing to see here. There's a few bad apples, and we'll do our best to get rid of them. So yeah, generally, it was a very negative view of those protests. Maurice, how does the role of the sheriff as celebrity, this industry, how does this play into the state of the modern sheriff? I'm a sometimes watcher of 60 Days In, in which regular folks attempt to infiltrate jails. And you watch the show and you think, how is this possible? How would law enforcement ever agree to allow this? The answer is, it's because it's all sheriffs who are desperate to be famous. So obviously, that's a relatively mundane phenomenon. But what I'm wondering is, like, obviously, we've got Joe Arpaio, we've got sheriffs who are sort of trying to to follow in his footsteps as famous sheriffs in right-wing media. I mean, what are the incentives there? And how is that driving the state of the sheriff today? It's a great question. I want to take a step back and say that part of my initial desire to do this reporting was that I, growing up in the United States, like so many other people, had always heard of sheriffs as these kind of mythic figures. And sometimes when I tell friends that I'm reporting on sheriffs, they scratch their head and say, wait, is that still really a thing? It's kind of like the Texas Rangers or these law enforcement figures of myth. And and we all kind of grew up watching Westerns with John Wayne, where he plays a sheriff, or Toy Story with Woody the sheriff, right? But I had noticed that maybe 10 years ago, if you said to someone, can you name a sheriff? If they got beyond John Wayne and Woody, then probably they were thinking of Joe Arpaio, right? The larger-than-life Arizona sheriff who was allied with Trump, who would go on Fox News and talk about President Obama's birth certificate and all of that. And then a few years later, you had David Clark out of Milwaukee, who was a constant presence on the campaign show for Trump, also on Fox News all the time, just talking about sort of whatever news of the day there was. I remember this one segment where he talked about Beyonce's outfit at the Super Bowl. And it was like, why is a sheriff on TV talking about that? I think that Arpaio and Clark really paved the way for sheriffs. There were many other sheriffs who saw that and they thought, well, I'm already famous in my county, but now I have the opportunity to be famous beyond just my county. And to what end they want to be famous might vary. Maybe they want to run for higher office. Now the governor of Missouri is a former sheriff, and you see sheriffs running for Congress here and there. That movement hasn't gained a ton of traction, but I don't know if you remember the the film Don't Look Up, but one of the jokes made in that movie was that the president was trying to appoint a sheriff to the Supreme Court, right? So there's this idea that sheriffs are increasingly kind of these celebrity figures who can reach national politics. And then you're seeing sheriffs who have an interest in fame on the right, because after their sheriff, there may be something more lucrative for them. There may be opportunities to be talking heads on Fox News or on other types of conservative media, because 
the title sheriff, it's one of those titles that even after you're no longer sheriff, you tend to keep appended to your name, like Sheriff Arpaio. And I think a lot of sheriffs have seen that path to political celebrity as useful and good for them because it'll A, keep them elected in their community as long as as they can. But then even if they lose the election, they have this brand, this political identity, and this platform from which they can become speakers on the right. They can have a career going on Fox News. They can go on reality shows like 60 Days In and really pave a path to whatever types of celebrity they want later on. Wow. Well, definitely no perverse incentives there. That all sounds right in order. Maurice, thank you so much for your time. This has been disturbing and really interesting. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it was great to talk about this. Absolutely. And now for Fresh Hell. Will, we are in the thick of it with midterms. Early voting's already started, and so has some of the more interesting antics, especially in places like Arizona. What do you see in there? This is sort of a serious, grim one. I consider talking about the Dukes of Hazard stars, new, just absolutely <laughs> awful right-wing movie about a guy who catches a restraining order that prevents him from going near a high school because there's American flag or something. Uh, next week. <laughs> But this is too pressing to ignore. So this is sort of the 2000 mules and its consequences. And so we're seeing people, particularly in Arizona, who are particularly geared up by 2000 mules and Dinesh D'Souza, who are convinced that all the crime, all the ballot fraud that they're after, that they're convinced is real, goes down at these ballot drop boxes. Now, if only you could be outside the ballot boxes and catch the mules. This is what they're trying to do. So... We saw this a bit in the primary in Arizona, where I think there was basically one instance of people doing what they call ballot tailgating, where you kind of hang out and try to catch a mule. Now, how do you know who a mule is? Well, let's just say I suspect they're looking. <laughs> yes, just just vibes. Honestly, I suspect they are looking for uh, minority voters or anyone who sort of strikes them as a Democrat. But basically, these people they camp out, and I, I guess there's a 75 foot limit. So if you're outside of that, you seem to be able to do relatively whatever you want. And so they sort of camp out at 76 feet and keep an eye on the box. But now that early voting has opened up for the general election in Arizona, we're seeing reports of intimidation at the ballot drop boxes. So the big one was in Mesa, the city of Mesa. Arizona, where someone reported that his wife and him went to drop off their envelopes, and suddenly people started photographing them and saying, hey, you're a mule. And unfortunately, this seems to only be sort of kicking off. Yeah, absolutely. So just to back up a little bit, there's been tons of agitation for people to hang out around ballot drop boxes. And this comes from the fringes and it comes from the not so fringes. I saw the Secretary of State candidate in New Mexico the other day calling explicitly for this, saying, get some friends together, sit by the drop boxes. I think that's alluring for them for two reasons. One, because they want to catch a mule. And two, they also kind of like hanging out with each other. That's kind of, that's some of the draw to like Trump rallies. People like having this community and they're with their buddies and they're going to take down the crime syndicate. But this is real effects in places like Arizona, which has multiple really tight elections going on right now. And to your point, there are people literally with like armor platelets on their shirts. They've got guns in the back of their trucks and they are sitting literally firing distance from these ballot drop boxes. If you saw it someplace else, you would really fear for the integrity of their elections. And you're like, oh, damn, that's the U.S. It's very grim. And I think we've talked about this before, but this idea that I think when you get into these conspiracy theories, it gives 
gives you some agency. And so I think there is that community and the sense of, well, we're going to go catch the mules. I mean, I think the complaint we described that's been referred to the Justice Department is actually one of the milder ones. And this is just over the past few days. We see people in military gear and body armor camping outside, looking at the ballot boxes. I mean, how does that not just send the vibe to voters that you are being intimidated? There are guys who potentially have guns who are watching you as you cast your ballot. Well, absolutely. And I also, it's striking to me that any protective measures that people take to get around these folks is then wrapped into another conspiracy theory about cheating about those people's guilt. So there were some people covering their license plates, actually covering with an American flag. Now, it's been mostly speculated that the person covering their plates was one of these right-wing poll watchers that was one of the guys with the guns. And it seems to make sense to me, but it actually hasn't been proven whose car it is. Regardless of whose car it is, sites like the Gateway Pundit have taken a picture of that vehicle and said, see, they're covering their license plates. Soros doesn't want you to know who is voting. I think that's so fascinating because either the person is covering their license plate because they don't want to be held responsible for loitering with a gun, or they're covering their plates because they don't want someone following them home. And either way, this isn't indicative of threatening behavior at a ballot box. No, it's it's indicative of someone being a mule. It's ridiculous. And it frankly, a lot of this reminds me of tactics on both sides used outside abortion clinics, right? You have the people standing at the minimum designated line, 75 feet away or whatever, and people covering their plates to either avoid being logged into some database of people who've visited a, an abortion clinic or to avoid being held accountable for being, frankly, just jerks in public. Yeah, I think it is sort of raising the cost of participating in the democratic process. I mean, certainly we see the ways that random people like poll workers in Georgia were are sucked into this right wing conspiracy machine. I mean, what if someone gets a video of you and you're dropping off four ballots for your family members, and then suddenly it ends up on the gateway pundit and they people become obsessed with ruining your life? It's not impossible to imagine. But also the any mailbox you can drop ballots off at. So it sort of seems like like if there were mules, this would not be a particularly effective way to catch them. No, absolutely not. I mean, I think a large part of this is just messaging, right? It's showing that they are there, that they are watching. In fact, there have been flyers that people have been putting under windshields saying to the effect, we're watching, we'll see whatever scam you pull off. They like having that big show of force there, again, because they like hanging out with their buddies and two, because they like people knowing that there is somebody videotaping this box at all times and that if you walk a little funnier, I don't know, you put your up or something, you're liable to spend the next five years of your life with your details floating around 4chan. Yes, well, we will be keeping an eye on this as we get closer to the election. And I think the sad reality is this kind of activity is only going to step up ahead of election day. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.